The sermon text today is Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16 through 4, verse 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppress oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. You know, I think you'd agree with me that um, sometimes this life just seems chaotic. I mean, it just seems upside down. It, it makes no sense in many ways. You know, when I graduated from University of Maryland and I got a job in accounting at Westinghouse, this is back in the early mid-80s, and uh, I'd been there maybe a year or two, and there was a woman that was in our building that had worked at the company for probably close to 40 years. And she was retiring, and they had a big party for her, and uh, 40 years of labor. And so they had a party for her, and uh, after the party, at the end of the day, uh, she left the building, of course, and went to her car. All the cars were parked across this road. And on her way to her car, she was, she was struck by a car. And she, she died that day. And I remember thinking, where's the justice of it all? You work 40 years, you save up your money, you got this expectation of a life ahead and nothing. And I just remember thinking, the injustice of it. It's events like these that challenge us to believe that God is good and sovereign in all of his ways. This is what we just studied last week. That God is sovereign, you know, that in everything there is a season and, and there's a time for every matter and he's making all things beautiful. This is a challenge. These kind of events in life, they challenge this belief that God really is good and he really is doing things to make all things beautiful. Well, that's what the preacher's dealing with. Uh, you know, we're reading out of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes just means preacher. It's kind of an assembly of the people and, and there's an instructor, a preacher. And what he's doing here is he's raising this objection before us. He's raising before us, I know there is injustice. I know there is oppression. And, and he's, he's coming to terms with it. This is why I love Ecclesiastes. It's so real. It's so here. It's so now. So the first thing he's going to do is show us, I have seen under the sun this kind of injustice. So we're going we're to acknowledge that, 
But then the second part of the sermon is going to be two answers that he gives from God. Two answers for how God can be sovereign and good and make all things beautiful in spite of what we see as unjust, injustice and oppression and so forth. So we're going to look at what we have as life under the sun and then we'll look at how God answers that objection. Uh, So first, the injustice. Look with me back at chapter 3, verse 16. He says, moreover, so this reminds us that it's a continuation of where we've been. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, when he says, I saw under the sun, that's an expression for life. We're not in the Garden of Eden, and we're not in the new heavens and new earth. We are living on this planet on this earth, it has been corrupted by sin, it's ruined, and it's fallen, and we see the effects of it. Now, some people see under the sun, and what they think is, well, it's it's really the perspective of life of those who live without divine, you know, viewpoint of God. You know, they're not looking at life through the lens that God gives them. I don't think it means that. Why? Because injustice comes to the godly and the ungodly. I think what he's speaking about here is this is the life that all of us live. It's this life. It's in exile. We are not experiencing the fullness of God. We're still dealing with this corrupt world. And so he's saying life under the sun is what we have right out there under the sun. And what we have there is injustice. You see in 16 he says, I saw that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. What's he speaking about? He's speaking about in the place of justice would be the court system. It would be civil government. You know, in the place where there should be people that are looking for justice and are good, there is injustice. I mean, you've got to admit that's a terrible thing. Society can't flourish, you know, when, when, when judges are receiving bribes and police are corrupt and civil magistrates are, are greedy. I mean, God has established government for the purposes of our good. And when things are not that way, and society can't flourish. I mean, most of you have been in a courthouse, or you've at least seen a picture of, or you've seen a statue of Lady Justice, that Roman god. You know, the, the lady with the, with the band around her eyes, so she can give justice without partiality. She doesn't see, and she has a, a, a balance in her hands, you know, and it's a perfectly balanced scale. That way, the person that comes before her will receive balanced justice. But she's got a sword in her right hand. That sword is to execute justice on the wrongdoer. Well, can you imagine if you took the band away from her eyes so she could start judging on partiality and, and the scales are, are not balanced and, not, and then the sword's used to advance the wrongdoer? You can imagine that. We see that right now. I mean, you see that in the nations. You see that in many governments across this world where freedoms are being denied, people are being persecuted. That's life under the sun. That's all he's saying. This is life under the sun, that in the place of justice, you will often see wickedness. But go on, notice what he says, in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. What's he speaking about? Well, in the context, I think he's speaking about the temple. And now I think he's speaking about the the, the church. You know, when there is no, you know, the church is to be the last bulwark of truth and justice. Even if civil government goes corrupt, at least the church will have the will have the courage to speak with truth. And when the church fails, then all's ruined. Think about the nation of Germany. How well did Germany do in the Second World War when the church capitulated to the rise of Nazism? There was no voice for the people. The church bowed down before the government. 
But he goes on. There's more that's under the sun. Uh, people have these objections. You may have these objections here right now. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I saw the oppressions done under the sun. Again, he's, he's, he's observing what happens in life. He says, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. What he's speaking about here is just in society, that there is imbalance, there is abuse, there is oppression. It's a misuse of power. You know, it's the rich, it's the wealthy, it's the connected, it's the, it's the positioned people. You know, corruption or oppression is always misusing power for their own ends. The idea here in Hebrew is, is that they're accumulating things. We don't know exactly what the oppressions were. We're not told, but it's probably cheating, defrauding, taking from neighbors, maybe abusing physical and sexual, the exploitation of others because they have power. It's this idea of they're accumulating profit for themselves because of their positions that they have. This is the oppression that we often see under the sun. Now, of course, on the other side of the oppressor is the oppressed, the one who has no voice, the one who has no power, the one who has no advocate. They have no comfort. They only have tears, the tears that they weep because of the injustice that are thrown upon them. Uh, perhaps even some of you have felt you've cried yourself to sleep because of a ruined reputation from the lies of other people. Or maybe you have legitimately endured abuse, maybe physical or even maybe sexual. And this is what leads people to say in verses 2 and 3, maybe it's better I wasn't even born. Maybe, maybe if I wasn't born, not only would I not experience it, but I wouldn't even have to look upon the evil. That's what the preacher is preaching. In this world, under the sun, you have injustice, you have unrighteousness, and you have oppression. Well, we just got to stop for a minute and recognize, you know, injustice should challenge us. It should challenge us. It, it may not be in your world. It may not be on your front step, but it ought to challenge us as the people of God. I mean, when you consider the nations, for example, think about some of the nations that exist on this globe right now where they are suffering, justices being denied, being watched, being persecuted, being threatened because the civil government may have all the cards, they have all the power. So consider the oppression that's taking place right now. Or consider the marketplace. You know, the marketplace in society, you know, the Me Too movement is highlighting what has always been, which is the exploitation of the weaker, oftentimes the woman. I mean, you think about the glass ceiling. The glass ceiling is an expression we have that is the, the kind of the invisible barrier to those perhaps in the marketplace who are women or who are minorities. But you have, you have pockets of oppression in the marketplace. Or, or look in your homes. Again, you may not have been raised this way. Uh, but you'd be surprised to know that the suffering that goes in place of homes. There's a survey done that among the conservative Christians, the spousal abuse percentage was the same as, that, as those who are not Christian. I mean, again, the one who has power. Maybe it's a, a mother in this case. Or perhaps it's a father over the weak or the older or the, the other spouse. And, and sadly, in the church, 
in the church you have that kind of injustice? I mean, think about in the last 20 years, all the information that's come out of the Roman Catholic clergy, the harsh authoritarianism or the exploitation of somebody else. But in Protestantism, it is the same. You know, in these places of refuge, places that were supposed to be for safety have not been. And maybe that is you. And you have suffered. Maybe at the hands of someone who had more power. You know, the church has not done well with this. We want to do better with this. You know, Brian Lawner, our pastor of counseling, has taken the staff and has taken a group of lay counselors and is taking the elders in the spring and is going to be taking the seminarians through this church cares curriculum. It's trying to help the church do better with identifying those who have been either threatened by or subject to abuse. We, we haven't done well, and we want to do better. Many times, we don't even see it, and so we don't think it exists. You know, so I, when I, growing up as a kid, we used to go sailing in the Severn River, which jumps in the Chesapeake Bay. Chesapeake Bay is a beautiful body of water <clears throat> on the eastern shore of this place called Bloody Point. Bloody Point, we used to sail by it, knew what it was, knew its name, didn't really know why it got the name. Um, and there's some debate about why it's called Bloody Point, but, you know, in the years that pass, sometimes names aren't always understood, but, but the majority of people understand that the name, Bloody Point, it's a certain point of land, it, it was named that because when the slave trading ships would come transatlantic, that the slaves who were dead on the boat would be pushed over at that point before entering the Annapolis Harbor, where then they would take the remaining slaves and sell them. I'm staring at this just injustice over the years. I didn't know it, didn't see it, didn't have any clue about it. And yet its name is for that purpose. And that's what happens sometimes among us. We, we don't see it. And so, but we need to be challenged by injustices. Our heart needs to be taken up with that. But injustices don't just challenge us, they also warn us. They ought to warn us, those of us in positions of authority. It could be a civil servant, it could be a law enforcement personnel, it might be a pastor, it can be a teacher, an employer, an instructor, a mother or a father. You know, God has given these different stations in life, he has given them to us and he gives them authority, a power for the protection and not the exploitation of others. And when we abuse that power, we stand accountable to God. That's the case for elders. You know, in 1 Peter 5, Peter makes very clear, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is under your care. You're not my flock or the flock of the elders. You're God's flock. You're God's sheep. And he says about three verses later, he says, and you will stand before the chief shepherd when he appears. And don't think that we as an elder board haven't thought about that. But, but not just pastors and elders, mothers and fathers. You have places of authority. You are called to teach and admonish your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You're called to raise them well, to protect them, to love them, to serve them well for God's honor. You've been given that authority. So I think texts like this remind us, you know, injustices don't just challenge us, uh, but they also warn us. But I would say this, you know, there may be some of you here today 
And you think, but this is why I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God, because if God were great, and if he were powerful, and if he were making all things beautiful, this, this stuff wouldn't exist. I mean, the injustice and the oppression and the unrighteousness, this is why I don't believe in God. This is why I choose not to believe him. And what's interesting, I would just respectfully submit to you that you want justice, and you want it. And the fact that you want it would be my offering to you that you have been made in the image of God and that God has set eternity in your heart. The fact that you want it actually argues for the existence of God. And I would say this, that, that if you don't think there is a God, then why would you want justice? If there is no final judgment, then you're being hypocritical to your own theology. It's nonsensical to argue there is no God and yet you want justice. There can be no justice without God. Now, C.S. Lewis makes the argument that it's a universal truth in every human being, whether you're a Christian or not, that you want justice. You, you see it in the three-year-old. A three-year-old, his brother gets a bigger piece of cake. You don't have to teach him to say, that's not fair. That's not a social construct. That's not society constructing in him an awareness of what's fair. He knows it at three years old. His older brother comes and takes his toy. That's not fair. We know about justice. It's because God has put us. He has put that understanding of right and wrong within us. No, I, I, think, I think the injustice and the unrighteousness and I think the, uh, the oppression argues for God. And it's really to God whom we turn. This is, you know, what does the preacher have to say about God? So we know under the sun, we see these things. So, so what does the preacher say? How does he respond? Well, he says two things. He gives two responses. First, God will judge in, in his time. In his time, he will bring judgment. Look with me at verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, that reminds you of the passage we just studied. Remember in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter. What the preacher is saying is this. And he wastes no time, by the way. So he raises the objection, I see that under the sun there is injustice. And so what does he say? There is, God will judge it. Every matter in its time. In God's time, he will judge it. He'll make it all beautiful. Remember how in its time there is both joy and happiness. There is mourning and there's dancing. There will be a time where God brings a perfect, a complete justice. You know, God does want justice. You know, when God drew the children of Israel out of Egypt, he drew them out of oppression. And he took them into the wilderness and he gave them laws. And he gave them laws of how to care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, the immigrant. He gave laws that established justice and God will bring justice. God will comfort those that have shed tears of oppression. God will do it. Now, I know you may be thinking right now, well, I haven't seen much justice by God lately. I've seen a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice over a lot of years. Well, let me just remind you, let me remind you, God has brought judgment. He's brought judgment to Adam and Eve. It's a partial judgment, moving them into the wilderness, into exile because of their sin. He did judge a whole lot of people when he brought the flood. A lot of breathing human beings perished over their sin. He brought a partial judgment when he, when he distributed languages among the people at Babel, separating the peoples. He brought judgment to the nation of Israel when they failed to walk before him. 
and he sent him into exile. God does bring judgment, but you know where his most perfect justice is? You see his perfect justice in the very cross of Jesus Christ. You see the justice of God as he brings forth judgment upon Christ. Think about it for a minute. What's the Christian gospel? The Christian gospel is that we have all fallen short of God. All of us have sinned in, in varying degrees and ways, no doubt. And part of that may be temperament, part of that may be upbringing, but we've all sinned against God. And yet God has put the sins of his people on the shoulders of his son. And then he's brought, God has brought his justice upon the son. Our sins upon the son. God hasn't overlooked him. He hasn't given us a pass because we're close to him. We're connected to him. We, we, we have some relationship. He brought all of his righteous wrath on the son. Those are our sins so that we might be freed. We see in the cross the justice of God made it out. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. So sinners are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has redeemed us. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. Now listen to how he says it. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins of the years of people before him. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Now, God wanted to give an example of perfect justice. He was just in punishing our sins, and at the same time, through faith, he has justified those who committed the sins that he showed himself just over. He is just and the justifier of those with faith in Christ. So God is just, and he has punished the Son for our sins. So if you're a Christian here, this is your hope. This is your hope that you don't have to stand before this God who will judge the world in righteousness. Why? Because he has judged the Son for you. Jesus in John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is why Paul says that he resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Think of all the things Paul could have driven a stake in. It's this. Why? Because it displays the justice of God, that he has punished the Son for our sins, but he's also justified those with faith in Christ. Now, for you who have not come to God through faith in Christ, you still stand before that day, his bar of justice over what you've done, the injustices, the oppressions, the wickedness that all of us have at one point walked in. But we have an advocate now. We have one who has borne. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He evidences the bearing of our sins and the separation of God. So God, his first answer is God will judge in his time. He'll judge and it will be thorough and it will be complete. But the second response that the preacher gives as to why there's this delay in judgment is he wants to humble us. Now, I want you to see this in verse 18 because it's a little difficult to understand. Look in 318. 
He says, I said in my heart. Now you notice the parallelism with 17. So in 17 he says, I said in my heart. He gives his first response in 17. He gives his second response in 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now what's he saying here? Why the delay in judgment, you ask? Why doesn't God bring judgment now? Well, God is using judgment. He will judge it, but he's using it right now to show us, to humble us, to see who we really are. This is so hard for us to understand. You know, that word test means to reveal or to make known or to expose. In other words, God uses the cruelty of men against men to show us what we're actually capable of. I know it's hard for you to believe this, but this is what you're capable of. The, the, The way that we can hurt and manipulate and criticize and harm one another, we're capable of this. He's showing us that we're like the beasts in our cruelty. We're no different than the animals in the forest, just tearing one another apart. Now, I know right now you're thinking, that's not me. I mean, I'm not that way. I, I, I could never do that. Let me remind you that many, many Germans prior to the Holocaust probably thought we can never see ourselves doing these things. And on and on the examples could be given. What I think he's doing is he's showing us this is what man is capable of apart from my grace. This is, you have to take a look at it. It's not pretty, I I grant you, but you have to take a look at it. He's showing us the amazing cruelty that we can bring upon one another apart from God. We need to see it. We need to. Not just the cruelty that we can participate in, but our own mortality. Look what he says in 19 and 20. In 19 and 20 he says, what happens to the children of man happens to the beast. It's the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. What he's saying here is nobody's going to last. We are like the beast in becoming dust. No one will, will outpace death. It's coming to all of us. It's a reminder, really, of Genesis chapter 3. From dust you were drawn to dust you'll return. Again, the preacher's saying, There is oppression out there, and God will judge it, but God's going to use that to remind us of how desperately we need to turn to God in faith. Now, obviously, he's not saying we're like the beast in every single way, because you notice in verse 21 what he says. In 21, he says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. A lot of people think the preacher isn't sure what happens after death. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think it's a, it's a question seeking an answer. I think it's a question making a point. He's already said in verse 17 that everybody will stand before God. He says in chapter 12, verse 7, he says the dust returns to the earth as it was, but the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So I think he knows exactly. I think he's making a point here. Yes, we are different. We are dust. But what God did to the dust with which he made men and women is he breathed his life into it. So we are different. So here, the, the second response is he's trying to humble us by reminding us that we're not really, in many ways, unlike the beasts. 
Now, you know, we've seen this in Scripture before. This isn't a new teaching. You know who I'm speaking about. Nebuchadnezzar, right? He, he's the great king of Babylon, uh, the, the king that, that crushed the northern kingdoms of Israel and, and attacked Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a great king. You read Daniel chapter 4. He was a great king. In fact, he was so great, he thought himself divine. And he put himself up there with God. He had a, an incredible kingdom. What did God do to him? God humbled him. You know what he made him? Like a beast. His hair grew long. Fingernails grew long. Ate the grass. He was humbled to being like a beast. Just like he's saying in Ecclesiastes. For months he was that way. But here's what he said when he came to his senses. At the end of the days, the days of him living like a beast, because God was showing him, that's all you are apart from me. You're just an educated beast. He said, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? It's amazing. You see this in Nebuchadnezzar, but you know what you see in the New Testament? It's like the prodigal son. What was the prodigal son doing? He was eating with the beasts. He was eating with the pigs. He was like a beast until when? He came to his senses. And he repented of his sins. That's what God's doing. God is showing us that apart from his spirit, we're like the beasts, educated maybe. But we're like the beasts until we repent and return to God and find meaning and purpose in life. That's what the preacher's driving us towards. So what do we do with all this? What do we do? Let me give you five takeaways. Because you see the text is pretty clear. He raises up this objection in verses 16. And in chapter 4, 1 to 3, he, this objection of, hey, there's injustice, there is wickedness, and there is oppression under the sun. We see it, every one of us here, if you've lived a few years, you got it. What does the preacher say? The preacher says, listen, God will bring judgment. You can rest assured God will bring judgment. But in the meantime, before he brings his judgment, he is going to use the injustice and the oppression of this world, he's going to use it to show us how much we need to be reconciled to God. So what do we do with this? Well, number one, I would say to you, humble yourselves with me if you haven't. Humble yourselves. This is probably going to be the hardest word you hear today. You know, there is so much natural in us that says, no, Tom, you don't understand me. I, I, I am really a good person. I, I, inside, I'm pure. I've had some bad situations in life, some bad external situations, but, but at the heart, I'm, I'm really good. And if we just can change some of the dynamics of the externals of my life, you know, better education, better situation, better opportunity at work, better relationship, better spouse, better children, better health, whatever the better is, then I'll be, I'll be okay. It, we resist this idea that inside is where the problem is. And yet Jesus said that, didn't he? When Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out of a man. Doesn't he say, 
You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Doesn't he show it's not the external behaviors that I'm looking at? It's the internal posture of the soul that we have. It, it, didn't Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, by the way, would have been a man that you would highly respect, a religious man, a faithful man. He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. That heart of stone has to be taken out and the heart of flesh put in. Have you humbled yourself before God? This is the offense of the gospel. This is really the, the offense of the gospel should never come from our behaviors or even the way we deliver messages. The offense of the gospel is you're telling somebody that they don't have any capacity to be made right with God apart from his spirit. That offends people. If you don't believe me, try it tomorrow at the office. You'll find people, that, are you telling me that I'm not good enough? Yeah, yeah I guess in a word I am. Yep, that, that would be it in a word. So this is the offense of the gospel. Have you humbled yourself? Have you been born again? Have you recognized that apart from God bringing life to the dry valley and dead bones of your soul, you will not, you will not see him as a father? It, it's an offensive message. It, it does offend people. And I don't mean to offend I just mean to explain that this is the beginning point of Christianity. This is, what, this is how we become Christians. We, we say, Jesus, you've come to make all things new. Would you start with me? Make me new. Take out my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh that loves you. So that's the first thing I would say. Have you humbled yourself? Uh, secondly, I would say we want to pray we want to pray and be patient for God's justice. We want to wait for God to bring justice. Now, God is going to bring it. You know, in Acts uh, 17, we read these words from Luke. He says, he commends all people everywhere to repent. That's just what I've said. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead. So Christ will be the judge that judges all the world. Now the Christian here, you don't have to worry about that day. Why? Because you know the judge. He was judged for you. So when you stand before that judge, it's going to be just fine because he'll know you and you'll know him because he has borne your judgment already. And that's why you pass out of death into life. We want to pray, God, bring your justice. Bring your justice. Now, some, some people think, well, that's not really a good prayer. I mean, boy, the justice of God, why would we want that? We do want, I think you do want justice. Even kids know this. Even kids want justice. I mean, you think about the fairy tales we, we read to our children or we let them watch, you know, Sleeping Beauty with Maleficent. You know, Maleficent is that, that evil... When she meets her demise, are the kids saying, oh, you should have given her another chance? No, they're happy for Sleeping Beauty. They're not, they're not fussed about her receiving justice. Or Lion King, Scar. When Scar meets his demise by the hyenas, anybody worried about Scar? The kids, these young kids that are so sensitive and so innocent, are they worried about him? Not at all. Not at all. Or Little Mermaid, Ursula. She meets her demise. Anybody worried about Ursula? No, I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> Carol said, how did he know? She goes, how did you know all this? I said, Lauren wrote it all up for me. 
I told you she runs the place. So you've got to write that down. I think I've said Maleficent about 18 times to not screw it up. But that's the reality. Among children, they're not worried. They're not thinking God is evil. Or, or, or they understand justice has to, the punishment of wickedness is right. This is why we love Christ. This is why our affections soar. He was punished for us. So we see that God is just and God will be just. He will be. That's why, you know, you even hearing this word today, you know, hearing the word of God is dangerous because now you're responsible to do something with it. You don't want to be like the man who hears the word and doesn't respond because you're like a man that builds a house on the sand. When the storms come, maybe not today, maybe not next week, maybe next year, when it comes, the house will be destroyed. You hear the word of God and we don't respond. We're like the house upon the sand. But if you do respond, then you're like the man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storms come, which they do to all of us, your house will remain standing. So so we want to pray for God's justice. Uh, and, And then thirdly, we want to comfort the oppressed. We want to comfort, we want to, we want to support to encourage those who are being treated with injustice or oppressed. Now listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, and I recognize that many of the um, issues of injustice and oppression are systemic to our culture. Giving the guy five bucks on the side of the road may make your conscience feel good. There are bigger issues at play. I get that. But, but here's what I'd propose to you in terms of you comforting the oppressed. Just start your own family. Start with your marriages. Start with your children. Start with those in your external family. If you see injustice uh, towards the elderly in your family, or your own children, or the way you treat your wife or your husband, but go even beyond that. If you're an employer, are your employees being treated fairly? You know, you go to your neighbors. If you see within your spheres of influence, if you see that there is injustice or oppression, you must speak up. Will it bring harm to you? It well could. It could. It could bring about you being fired. It could be you being ostracized. But that is what we do. One has stood in our place. One who has borne our injustices. So start there. The issues of, like when you think of sex trafficking and you think of, of these more systemic issues, what do we do with that? You know, it's, we, we, we're not in places of change. Let me encourage you, instead of just complaining what the government does or doesn't do, let's use the Bible. Let's use the language of the Bible, which is lament. Let's ask God, God, have mercy. God, have mercy and, and help our country, help our leaders. You know, when you think about sex trafficking, there's such a darkness to that. They use immigrants or they use young people that don't have power and don't have connections. And trying to get your hands around that is like grabbing smoke. But you know what? We can appeal to God like like Nehemiah did, like Daniel did. God, have mercy on us. Bring about change. Put people into office. Put people into positions that your glory might be displayed in these areas of oppression and injustice. We can pray that way. And I'll tell you, God hears the cries of his people. It's a test of our faith. Are we going to leverage? Are we going to appeal to God for that? And then fourth, I would say steward your activities. Look with me back at verse 22. He says, so I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work and a woman 
for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, I'm going to save much of this for next week in terms of stewarding your work, but, but his point here is that as a Christian, as an image bearer, the way you work, and remember the word for work isn't just the nine to five stuff. It could be in the field, it could be in the home. It just means activities, the activities that you do. He's saying steward those, do those well. Rejoice in the opportunities. Why do we rejoice? Because we're image bearers. And the way we work and the way we behave displays God to the world. So we image God. We give a presentation of God to the world by your honesty, by your diligence, by your hard work, by your encouragement. All those things are giving an image of God to people. Now, I know you think, well, I, I'm just a nobody. I, I mean, I'm just an ordinary Joe. I, I, I'm just, nobody really sees my life. Well, let me remind you, you know, Jonathan Lehman uh, is a theologian, political scientist up at, on Capitol Hill, and we're going to have him uh, come down and speak to us. He's an author, written a number of books on political theory, the church, and, and, and politics. Uh, we want to prepare ourselves for this election year. We want to think Christianly about our citizenship in this country. So he's going to come down and speak to us in the fall, last weekend in September, um, to, to better prepare us. We'll have a series of sermons, too, doing the same thing. Uh, but, but here's what he wrote. He says, more than the headline makers, it's the daily life of the average Christian that ultimately forms the world's perception of Christ and his gospel. So don't write yourself off of the page of God's plan. It's the ordinary Christian. You display the gospel in the way that you live, in the way that you work. The last thing I would say to you would be to consider your death. Consider your own death. When I say this, and we're talking about death a lot because it's Ecclesiastes, when you consider your death, I, I know many of us think about our deaths, and we think, what will it be like, and will I, will I be in pain, and what's going to happen when I close my eyes in death and all? I'm not speaking about that way. I want you to consider your death so that you can live now. In, in other words, I, I want to think about that day so that I live this day well. I don't want to just be morbid and think about what it's going to be like. I want to live today because I know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see God one day. You know, it's amazing how we can live day to day to day without any consideration of a final day. We live as if there's no end to the days that we have coming to us. You know, there used to be an article I read a long time ago. It says, put death in your day timer. Okay, if you're under 30, a day timer is actually the precursor to Google Calendar, just for the record. Put death in your day timer. In other words, plan on it. Be aware that it's coming. Walter Kaiser was a former professor of mine, and he says, tragically, we seldom take to heart as we ought the reality of death. We have so many distractions in terms of technology, medical professionals, caregivers, that the smell of death has faded. And when the smell of death fades, we live as if there's no end to the days that we, and we're guilty of presumption. So think about that so that you can live today. So I read this article on Larry King. You know, Larry King is a great interviewer. Lousy theologian, but he's a great interviewer. And he was asked, a wide-ranging interview, right? And, and the topic covered his fifth divorce from his wife. Fifth wife, fifth divorce. And um, he's 86 years old. So here's what he said about it. He said, I thought a lot about what I wanted the rest of my life to be. I said, Larry, you're 86. What do you got? Two, three, maybe four, maybe 10 years on a good... I mean, you're thinking about the rest of your life? No, you need to think about death. 
You need to think about the brevity of your life. You need to think about the end of your life. Lair's got to dial in here real soon. That's the way we are. We don't think about it. And if you don't think about your death, it's going to be tough to live well. You know, death is like a surgeon that wounds to heal. That's what death is like. It's a surgeon. It wants to wound you, but to heal you. So you live well. So here we have this. It seems like a very complex passage when it was read. But when you think about it, he just raised one objection. This objection of life under the sun. Does it discount God making all things beautiful? No, it doesn't. Why? Because he's going to bring judgment to all wickedness. And he's even going to use wickedness to reveal in us our need for him, that we would run to him, humble ourselves, repent, place our faith in Christ, and then walk in life without fearing death. Let's just take a minute now and ask God for wisdom on this grace. It might be a point of repentance for you. It might be a point of thankfulness. And then I'll pray in just a moment.